This episode of Navarra Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you. Welcome to Navarra Live. I'm Michael Walker and I am delighted to be joined by Ash Sarkar. Ash, how are you doing? I'm good. My cold has evolved from death's door to merely very disgusting. So I can't wait to sniffle through the next hour with you, Michael. (laughs) I am just moderately nasal. Um, So I think I'm doing slightly better than you are. Um, Coming up later tonight, outrage after Israeli soldiers have uploaded pretty disgusting videos um, to social media of what they've been up to in Gaza. Um, We'll be discussing COP28 and the text agreed by states at the conference. Is it the end of fossil fuels? Unfortunately, probably not quite yet. And homelessness is at shocking levels with tens of thousands of kids not in permanent homes this Christmas. First story. Almost 19,000 people have been killed in Israel's bombardment of Gaza, almost half of them children. It's all possible because of support from Western governments, principally the United States. And there were some signs of good news on that front over the past 24 hours. Now, this was a headline in the Financial Times. Joe Biden warns Benjamin Netanyahu to change tack or risk losing global support. And they describe these as, as the harshest criticism yet from the U.S president of Israel's wartime leadership. Now, this looks like a positive development, but it's actually quite a strange story. Now, the article says this. Joe Biden has said Benjamin Netanyahu must change tack, warning that Israel's, quote, indiscriminate bombing, unquote, in Gaza risked leaving the country isolated offering his harshest criticism of the Israeli Prime Minister's far-right coalition since the Jewish state began its military offensive in response to Hamas's October 7th attack. The US president said Israel was, quote, starting to lose support, unquote, around the world. Speaking to donors at a political fundraiser, Biden described Netanyahu's coalition as, quote, the most conservative government in Israel's history that doesn't want a two-state solution. And then Biden said, I think he has to change, that's Netanyahu, and with this government This government in Israel is making it very difficult for him to move. Now, that seems like a very big deal. Biden in public often says Hamas will have to leave power to have any kind of two-state solution or peace. It's very rare he says the same thing about Netanyahu's government, who are really the real block to it. They don't want a two-state solution, and they have all the power. They are the ones who can stop it and who are stopping it. Most importantly, though, there was that Biden said Israel's bombing in Gaza constitutes, quote, indiscriminate bombing, indiscriminate bombing. Now, Joe Biden is here very clearly admitting his close ally is committing a war crime. If bombing is not discriminate, if it doesn't discriminate between civilians and um, military targets, then that's a war crime. Netanyahu is doing that with US weaponry. So this should be a very big deal. Right? This should mean a, a dramatic change in American policy if they're admitting that Israel is committing war crimes with their weapons. However, it's not clear he meant to say it. So the Financial Times goes on to say this. One US official said Biden's remarks were not part of an orchestrated attempt by the White House to put pressure on Netanyahu, but were off the cuff and, quote, random. He was just being random. You know, when he said the bombing was indiscriminate, he was just being random. Right? This this does not sound serious to me. Like, you, you can't have, I mean, we know that Biden sort of says anything. I mean, by the way, he's being correct here when he calls the bombing indiscriminate, but he also went out and said he'd seen a video of beheaded babies. And then his officials afterwards had to say, oh, no, he hasn't actually seen that. 
uh, he was talking about a newspaper report. The guy seems to say anything, very confusing, very unserious. Um, and those comments were, this is significant, given to a closed-door fundraiser. So cameras weren't there. This was to people who donate money to the Democratic Party or to his presidential campaign. And Biden spoke publicly later on Tuesday during a press conference with Zelensky. I have had conversations with Bibi Netanyahu, and, uh, and uh, I want to make sure that uh, we don't forget uh, what we're doing here. We have to support Israel because they're an independent nation that's being, I mean, the brutality, the inhumanity, the way in which Hamas treated <clears throat> the Israelis, and I mean, raping and burning and beheading. I mean, it's just, just beyond comparison beyond comparison, and uh, to anything else that I've seen since I've been here, and I've been around for a long time. But I think that uh, we have made it clear to the Israelis and are aware that the, independent, the, the safety of innocent Palestinians is still of great concern. And so the actions they're taking must be consistent with attempting to do everything possible to prevent innocent Palestinian civilians from being being hurt, murdered, killed, lost, etc. So when talking about Israeli victims, they were subject to brutality and inhumanity, and it was beyond comparison. As for Palestinians, well, they've been, quote, hurt, murdered, killed, lost, etc. Hurt, murdered, killed, lost, etc. Right. What does that mean? Of course, it's not really Biden's words that matter, but his actions. On that front, the US continues to provide Israel with billions of dollars worth of military aid and diplomatic cover at the United Nations. Last week, the US vetoed a Security Council resolution calling for a ceasefire in the Gaza war. Yesterday, they voted against a similar motion put to the UN General Assembly. This is the moment that vote took place. The General Assembly is now voting on draft resolution A-ES10-L27, entitled Protection of Civilians and Upholding, uh, and Upholding Legal and Humanitarian Obligations. The result of the vote is as follows. 153 in favor, 10 against, 23 abstentions. Draft resolution A-ES10-L27 has been adopted. I thought I'd show you that clip because it shows the UN at its most democratic. Each country gets one vote, and even if a superpower like the United States votes against a motion, if they are in the minority, that motion will still pass. The problem is this, though. It won't be binding. According to the UN rules, it's only when the Security Council passes a motion that it is binding on member states, and anything put to the Security Council can be vetoed by any of its five permanent members. So that's the US, the UK, France, Russia and China, essentially those countries which won the Second World War. There has been no update since then. So it may be the case that the UN General Assembly can call for a ceasefire, but that is not binding on Israel. If it had passed in the Security Council, it would be. But there, the United States has that permanent veto, as does the UK, bizarrely, considering sort of the proportion of people we, we represent in, in, in the world. But that's a legacy um, of our imperial past, as does the UK, France, Russia, and China. Um, Ash, does this show the UN to be I mean, essentially pointless, right? The democratic part doesn't have any power and the powerful part isn't in any way democratic. 
I think that it shows that it's highly, highly limited. I wouldn't say entirely pointless, but for this heavily caveated reason, Israel doesn't need the support of even the majority of the countries in the world in order to continue out a program of ethnic cleansing against the Palestinians. In fact, Israel has never needed the support of the majority of countries in the world in order to carry on with what it wants to do. It has successively ignored multiple UN resolutions, including the right of return, stopping the expansion of um, of illegal settlements uh, to come to a just and peaceful outcome with the Palestinians. It has just absolutely ridden roughshod over um, all of those resolutions. Why? Because Israel's always drawn its support from, from a small handful of countries. Initially, this was the Soviet Union and the United States. In uh, later parts of its history, it was apartheid South Africa and the United States. And now it's, you know, the United States, big time, you know, UK, a bit more small time and sort of developing the sort of nascent relationship with India because you've got two le leaderships who really love the idea of an ethno state. Um, so you've not you've not had Israel that scared of what the consensus of the majority of the planet is, right? Because because they haven't needed to be. Where it is important, though, is that when you look at some of the quite delicate diplomatic work that's been done around getting countries in the global south to support war efforts in Ukraine, to scale back on trade and other sorts of dealings with Russia, particularly on things like grain and energy importation, that's of course been really tricky because you've had rich Western nations turn to poorer nations in the global South saying, look, sure, you might have a famine, but this thing is really important. And painstakingly, you know, many of those countries got on board. Now, when they see Israel completely flouting international law, committing war crimes before our very eyes, and that's got the co-sign of the United States, those small countries are saying, well, why should we be backing you in Ukraine anyway? Because look, we don't see a huge difference between Putin's war of aggression, Putin's um, Putin's war crimes in Ukraine, what, what Israel is doing. And I think that those countries making themselves heard in a forum like the UN General Assembly does matter. But the irony is, is that it probably matters less for Israel than it does for other conflicts in the world at the moment and what the West wants those global South nations to do about them. What do you make of... Joe Biden sort of saying to a fundraiser meal or a fundraiser event or whatever it was that Israel is is guilty of indiscriminate bombing of the Gazans with American bombs presumably right so an admission that their key ally who they are arming is committing war crimes and then officials have to just say to newspapers afterwards oh he was just being random he was just being random like it sounds like something from Mean Girls like how 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 do we respond to that right you've got a president admitting to war crimes, then his officials just say, oh, he was just confused. Like, how, how would that work in an international criminal court? Yeah, I mean, Joe Biden accused Israel of indiscriminate bombing. Then went, oh my God, I'm so random. I can't believe I just did that. He yeah. tucked his non-existent hair behind his ear. I think what this illustrates is that there's always a difference between how powerful people speak in private amongst other very powerful people and how they speak publicly. Because you'd have to be a complete idiot to think that Israel has any interest in a two-state solution, that Israel's actions in the Gaza Strip have been proportionate, that they've been 
considered and that they've tried to minimize civilian deaths. I mean, you've had IDF uh, spokesmen saying, look, we're going for damage and not precision. You've had attacks on civilian infrastructure and you've had bombings even on the areas marked out for safety and safe passage. These are not the actions of a state that's carrying out a discriminate bombing campaign. Um, although it's always questionable to what extent any campaign that claims to be discriminate really is. So Joe Biden may be many things, but I don't think that he's been, you know, recently lobotomized. Anyone who works in Washington, anyone who works in Westminster can see what the reality of Israel, Israelis, um, you know, politics are when it comes to uh, the Palestinians, but which, course, I'm talking about the Israeli government and the Israeli army. Um, and there will be spaces where they admit that. So I think that it shows the sort of inherent two-facedness of politics. People who are powerful will say one thing to each other, an entirely different thing uh, to the public, amongst whom they're trying to manufacture consent for the unjustifiable. Let's go straight on to our next story. We will be returning to Israel-Palestine later in the show. COP28 has ended with an agreement which, for the first time ever, pledges countries to move away from fossil fuels. The conference had been clouded in controversy, largely because it was held in the oil-rich United Arab Emirates, but the COP president, Sultan al-Jabba, claimed the outcome was a success. Many said this could not be done. But when I spoke to you at the very start of this COP, I promised a different sort of COP, a COP that brought everyone together, private and public sectors, civil society, NGOs, faith leaders, youth, and indigenous peoples. Everyone came together from day one. Everyone united, everyone acted, and everyone delivered. We operationalized loss and damage and started to fill the fund. We mobilized more than 83 billion US dollars in new financial commitments. We launched Altera, the world's largest catalytic private investor that is 100% focused on solutions to climate change. And we delivered World first after world first. A global goal to triple renewable energy and double energy efficiency. Declarations on agriculture. Declarations on food. Declarations on health. Many more oil and gas companies stepping up for the first time. Stepping up to deliver against very ambitious goals and objectives. And for the first time, to deliver on methane and emissions. And we have language on fossil fuel in our final agreement for the first time ever. So that was Sultan al-Jabba sort of listing off what he thinks are a bunch of achievements from 
COP28. Um, that deal itself, so that agreement which was signed off today, is itself 20 pages long. It's very detailed. Um, we won't be showing you all of it. But the biggest controversy involved language around fossil fuels. Um, many countries and campaigners had wanted the deal to pledge to phase out or phase down fossil fuel use. Instead, it commits states to this, transitioning away from fossil fuels in energy systems in a just, orderly and equitable manner, accelerating action in this critical decade so as to achieve net zero by 2050 in keeping with the science. So that's the first time fossil fuels have been included um, in a COP agreement, which you saw there, Al Jabba sort of really boasting about the first time it's been in there. But the phrasing does seem a lot weaker than the initial suggestions of phasing out or phasing down. Nonetheless, the US climate envoy, John Kerry, was impressed. I think as you look around this room and, and you look at the number of people who are here, um, it underscores the complications, the difficulties, the fundamental challenge of bringing 200 countries together and finding consensus. I think that everybody here should, should be pleased that in a world of Ukraine and the Middle East uh, war and all the other challenges of a planet that uh, is foundering, uh, this is a moment where multilateralism has actually come together and people have taken individual interests and attempted to define the common good. So John Kerry has sort of made it his thing to try and separate climate negotiations from all other elements of geopolitics. So sort of while the United States is, is trying to stop China, um, achieve technological advancement, um, John Kerry is trying to sort of say, okay, we're, we're, we're battling on these fronts, but let's still talk climate. I think there he was sort of saying this is to some degree working. Less impressed were representatives from the small island states who are most vulnerable to climate change. Samoa's lead negotiator said this. Zoning in on paragraph 26 and 29 of this, of this decision, we have come to the conclusion that the course correction that is needed has not been secured. We have made an incremental advancement over business as usual when what we really needed is an exponential step change in our actions and support. Mr. President, in paragraph 26, we do not see any commitment or even an invitation from parties to peak emissions by 2025. We reference the science throughout the text and even in this paragraph, but then we refrain from an agreement to take the relevant action in order to act in line with what the science says we have to do. Earlier today, I spoke to a British scientist who's just got back from the conference in Dubai. Simon Lewis is Professor of Global Change Science at UCL, and I began by asking him whether this agreement is an important step forward or a big disappointment. Oh, it's a big disappointment. I mean, obviously, it's good that finally, after all these years, we are discussing the actual root of the problem, which is using fossil fuels. But this agreement is a real baby step forward in saying transitioning away from fossil fuels uh, with a huge number of loopholes, which means that that's probably not going to happen. And so what was the dispute, as far as I understand it? Lots of countries wanted it to be phasing out fossil fuels. We've ended up with moving away from fossil fuels. Can you sort of talk us through some of the wrangling that went on and the significance of the outcome? Some countries, the small island states, the uh, European Union, were saying we need to phase out fossil fuels. We need to get them out of the energy mix. 
because that's how we solve climate change, because there are not going to be enough new technologies to suck carbon out of the atmosphere. So the only way is to stop the emissions in the first place. And others were saying, no, we need to just focus on the emissions. It's a, a, a big call from the fossil fuel states. Say, just focus on the emissions and don't demonize fossil fuels. So that's the kind of wrangling. And the penultimate version of this um, agreement was saying the uh, reduction in both the production and consumption of fossil fuels. And what this new wording says, this transition away, is really putting all the emphasis on consumption rather uh, than the production. So it's it's basically saying if there's if there isn't the demand, then obviously we'll move move and transition away from fossil fuels. But we're not going to do anything about new fossil fuel investments. And there was obviously lots of controversy that this COP was held in an oil state. So it was a COP where there was a real discussion about putting fossil fuels into the document. But it, you know, people thought that potentially the COP president had a vested interest um, in watering down any commitment when it came to fossil fuels. I mean, do you think that did end up being significant? Could we sort of say that this was sabotage somewhat from the top? I don't know about sabotage. Um you know, you've always got the petrostates and uh, the Saudi Arabians in particular have been trashing the climate talks for, you know, 28 years now. So so that's no surprise. But I do think that having him at the top gave a kind of false sense that uh, this might become some big breakthrough agreement because he could bring the fossil fuel states and, and industry on side. And that just didn't didn't happen at all. In fact, we got all of the loopholes that the fossil fuel industry want inside the document. So on this transitioning away, it says in an orderly manner. And that is what the oil industry always uses as an excuse to keep investing in fossil fuels because into in new oil because they don't want to um, see volatility. So they're saying we need this for the stability of the energy mix. And it's not true, but that's the justification. And then further on in the document, it says that um, countries can use transition fuels on the way to net zero. Now, there's just no time to do that. And transition fuels means gas. So you've got a big loophole for oil and a big loophole for gas built into the agreement. Um, so while, yes, global headlines are sending a signal to say that we're transitioning away from fossil fuels, actually, I think if you're in the fossil fuel industry, you're pretty happy with the outcome. Taking a step back, this is one thing I, I get confused about. We were saying beforehand, this is a tradition you're coming on after the cops. And I think every time I have the same confusion, which is exactly what this document does and doesn't do. Right. So there are loopholes. But at the same time, even if you were to break the cop agreement i mean there isn't an enforcement mechanism or or is there am i missing something is the whole document just about signaling i suppose i'm asking a sort of fundamental question why does it matter what does and doesn't get into these documents that are, that are agreed at the end of each cop so i do think that they send a signal to the world and they do send a signal to markets but why this particular one mattered this cop mattered more than uh, kind of a usual cop is because the Paris Agreement says, after a certain number of years, we should do a global stock take. And that's to say, where are we in terms of actual emissions and what countries have pledged to do? And where do we need to be to fulfill the obligations of the Paris Agreement? And then how are we going to bridge that gap? And what this document was supposed to do 
was say, here's where we are and here's where we need to be. And these are the actions that we're going to take to bridge the gap. And the bit about action, the bit about what we are going to do, what countries are going to do to bridge the gap was very, very weak. Uh, there was very little on finance and there was very little on new obligations for countries to come back in two years, within two years, to say what they will do next in terms of reducing their emissions. Um, Sultan al-Jabba, so the president of COP, was sort of boasting about the involvement of business and even oil firms in this COP. Um, now, I mean, there are sort of two different ways of looking at this, aren't there? So the traditional way on the left is to say all of these business groups, these vested interests, they're getting in the way of any kind of strict climate action and they should be out of the room. The other perspective is to say that, well, look, if we if we want to um, limit climate change, if we want to bring forward climate action, we need to pile in as many people as possible and actually sort of trying to get business on side is is a positive. Where do you stand on on, on that spectrum? The temptation is to say we should exclude all business from uh, any of these discussions. But then on the flip side, we will say, well, we should also exclude civil society and all the activist groups from all of these discussions. And no matter all of the problems with multilateralism and all of the problems with the COP process, actually having the politicians in the same place as um, all of civil society um, does push things forward. It's been civil society that's been banging on and banging on saying we need to phase out of fossil fuels. And finally, it couldn't be ignored. Now, it didn't go into the declaration as everyone wanted it to, but the conversation is being had and it will come back next year and the year after and it will get built on. So I do think a very inclusive process is is more important than trying to remove one group because I think then you risk everyone else being excluded and having countries just negotiate it in isolation and themselves will be will be a worse outcome. And the, the other thing I still remain sort of unsure about each time these cops come around is to what extent you know, they do really matter or that they're a bit of a sideshow because, you know, it seems to me most of the progress that sort of we've made when it comes to climate change is is in part technological. So we've had these sort of advancements in solar becoming incredibly cheap. Um, and that has a lot to do with investment decisions made in Beijing, often for sort of geostrategic reasons. So you've got a bit of an arms race at the moment between the United States and China when it comes to sort of investing in um, well, all sorts of techno technologies, but green tech are is among them. So how significant do you think these cops are? Or, or is the real power held elsewhere and what's really going to save us is, is, is somewhat irrelevant to what happens in a conference room every 12 months? It's a, great, it's a great question. Obviously, most of the power is outside and will be about the deployment of, of technologies. But I do think these cops are important because they each year give the world an excuse to pause and consider the climate change problem, which because most of the time it's further into the future and it's not a pressing need now like some you know, economic and social needs, then it gets put down the agenda. And I think it's just a good refocus every year, even if um, you know, it's not earth shattering about what happens. But we do need multilateralism is, you know, and, and countries to get together to decide things and having an avenue to do that on climate change is much better than not having one. 
from you, I suppose a sort of, you know, more lighthearted question, sort of any standout moments, you know, any, any moments where you thought, wow, um, that delicate really blew, blew that out of the park or, or moments where there was a real sort of villain who you thought was going to bring the whole thing down. So sort of any, any memorable moments you can sort of feed back to our audience. When the president's draft of the, uh, um, of, of the text came out and uh, the small island states represented saying, I'm just not going to sign my death sentence by signing on to this. I just refuse. Like you just can't, um, can't do anything but react strongly to, you know, this is an, an existential fight for small island states and uh, the least developed countries and you know the the power and the authority that they bring and the moral clarity that they bring to these um uh, to these debates is really really important it's a very powerful way to end that interview it wasn't light-hearted as i'd sort of suggested that maybe that I, I don't know why i thought the most powerful moments from a cop meeting would have been light-hearted also watching back when i'm doing questions how often do i mix my metaphors you obviously can't blow something out of a park you knock something out of a park or blow something out of a water. Not a water. I got it wrong again. I'm going to blame it on the cold. Um, that reference at the end there. So the president um, of COP had put forward an initial draft agreement, which I think didn't really mention fossil fuels at all. And that was, um, you know, he was saying there that it was those small island states that, that came out and sort of said um, that that would be a death sentence to them. Let's go on to our next story. Winter is a time to appreciate being at home, but too many people in Britain don't have a secure one. And that includes 139,000 children who are currently living in temporary accommodation. Shelter's director, Polly Neat, told the Metro this. Every day, our frontline services hear from parents who are desperately trying to provide some shred of a normal Christmas for their children while stuck in cold and damaging temporary accommodation. We know from our research that living in one room in a homeless B&B or hostel with precious little space to sleep, eat or play can seriously harm a child's well-being and development. The solution to ending homelessness is clear. The government must build 90,000 genuinely affordable social homes a year. Um, I wholeheartedly agree with Polly Neat's proposed solution there. And to the Labour Party's credit, they have at least recognised the problem. This was Keir Starmer at Prime Minister's Questions today. Nearly 140,000 children are going to be homeless this Christmas. That is more than ever before. That's a shocking state of affairs, and it should shame this government. Instead of more social housing, house building is set to collapse. Instead of banning no-fault evictions, thousands of families are at risk of homelessness. Rather than indulging his backbenchers, swanning around in their factions and their star chambers, pretending to be members of the Mafia. When's he going to get a grip and focus on the country? This week, let's just look at the facts. Let's look at the facts, actually, because rough sleeping... Rough sleeping in this country is down by 35%, Mr Speaker, since it's peak, thanks to the efforts of this government. There are hundreds of thousands of fewer children in poverty today, thanks to this government, Mr Speaker. And when it comes to home building, again, what are you doing? We just have the data this last week. In the last year, an almost record number of new homes delivered, Mr Speaker, more than in any year of the last Labour government. There was a slip up there. Sunak started to say rough sleeping is down 35% since... And then he stopped. He changed his mind. 
And that's because it's down since 2017, when the Tories had already been in government for seven years. The more useful starting point for an analysis would be when Labour were last in power. If we go from 2010, rough sleeping is now, in fact, up by 74%. So not a particularly impressive record. We've only increased rough sleeping by 74% since the last Labour government. And when it comes to house building, which he went on to talk about, in the year to March 2023, 246,000 new homes were completed. That's below the 300,000 a year target the government set. It's also not especially high historically. In the 1960s, we would regularly build over 350,000 homes a year, half of them by the council. Rishi Sunak is, though, correct. We are building more than under new Labour or the Tories since 2010. Um, that really was one of the big oversights of new Labour was to not build enough houses in this country. So it's not really something to brag about. Let's go back to Prime Minister's questions. 140,000 children homeless this Christmas and he's utterly tone deaf. Yes. The rise in homelessness shows how these Tory crises merge and grow and damage the country. Yes. Families like the Bradys in Wiltshire, both parents working full time with two young children, forced out of their home of 15 years by a no-fault eviction, now living in their van. Or 11-year-old Liam Walker, homeless this Christmas. He wrote a letter to Santa saying, please can I have a forever home? I don't want any new toys, I just want all my old toys out of storage. I just want us to be happy again. Is there anything that could shame this government into putting the country first, then it's surely this little boy. Yes! Mr Speaker, if you really cared about building homes... No, 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 no. I don't know. If you really cared about building homes, when, when there was an opportunity in this house, Mr Speaker, in this house to back our plans to reform defective EU laws, to unlock 100,000 new homes, Mr Speaker. What did he do? What did he do? He went in front of the cameras and said one thing and came in here and blocked it. Typical shameless opportunism. Well, I think what he's referring there is is a vote which was about nutrient neutrality, so sort of some rules which house builders had to pass to, to build new homes disagreement as to how necessary that is. What Rishi Sunak doesn't mention is that his government have been a complete failure when it comes to house building. So Michael Gove did have these quite ambitious plans um, to reform the house building sector, completely blocked by Tory backbenchers who actually took us back. It used to be a legal requirement to try and get to that 300,000 target of building per year. Um, it's now been dumped. So instead of um, making the law more favourable to house building, they have made it less favourable to house building. Of course, um, neither party really talking about pumping as much money into building social housing as I would like to see. Um, returning to the issue of rough sleeping, um, take a look at this ITV report from Birmingham. Andy has been homeless now for three months. Some nights he sofa serves, but most he spends on the street. Just under wherever you can get, really, a car park or whatever. What's that like? Um, awful at the moment because it's cold. Do you ever feel frightened out here on your own? Um, yes, at first did, yeah, we're quite, quite daunting. 12% of the UK population have either slept rough in 2023 or know someone who has. Now everybody's just one paycheck away from homelessness, which is really sad. It's just getting younger and younger, the people on the streets. So that man talked about sort of the fear 
of sleeping on the streets. Now, I imagine that's, you know, often from sort of violence or abuse from members of the public. Um, it's worth pointing out that hostilities can come from elsewhere. Um, so let's take a look at this clip. It went viral recently, and it shows a McDonald's security guard spraying a homeless man's sleeping bag with water in an effort to move him on. Mate, I'm allowed to film here. Do you know that? Because they give them powers there, man. Mate, I'm allowed to film. And they're not allowed to stand here. What a point. That is outrageous, bro. You've got to admit that's outrageous, bro. What are you doing? They give them powers there. So what? You're covering his sleeping bag. That's wrong. You know that. What are you doing? I don't give a shit about that. That is out of order. Bang out of order. That is bang out of order. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Hey, yo. Why are you trouble, man? Yeah, what do you mean why trouble? He just covered his sleeping bag in water. It's a winter. No, mate. Don't do it. That's why That's a matter. That is outrageous. Numerous homelessness charities, including Crisis St. Mungo's and Shelter, have condemned the scenes in that video. A spokesperson for Centrepoint told The Guardian this. It's incredibly sad to hear about this sort of treatment of someone forced to sleep rough, but this is not an isolated incident and is something we seem to be seeing more and more of in recent months. McDonald's have since apologized for the incident and said the guards involved have been removed permanently. They also offered to buy the man effective, affected new bedding. So you've got a multi-billion dollar company the world has seen that fairly outrageous action. They say, don't worry, we fired the guy, probably on minimum wage, and we've bought a homeless guy a new sleeping bag, multi-billion dollar company. I suppose lots to comment on here. Sort of the, uh, the scourge of, of people living in temporary accommodation, so people who are homeless but not street homeless. And then also I think people will have noticed sort of an increase in street homelessness since, since 2010, obviously slightly down from 2017, but way up um, from when Labour were last in power. And the response from you know, businesses and local government as well often just seems to be how can we clear these people out of sight and out of mind instead of how to get them in into some sort of safe housing. And all of these issues are in, are interconnected with other issues. So when you look at the rise of people being forced into temporary accommodation, that's related to house prices rising out of the reach of ordinary people, the rise of in-work poverty. So while in work, and that should be enough, to live on that should be enough to keep a roof over your head in practical terms it's not and that's because housing is seen as a vehicle for investment rather than a social good that needs to be provided to absolutely everyone and you've also got the impact of austerity the welfare cuts have been particularly brutal so if you're a single mom with two children you were much worse off under universal credit than you were on previous benefits regimes not that they were particularly uh, pleasant to live under either and that's something which is a government made policy the government knew that universal credit reforms would lead to an increase in child poverty that it would lead to an increase in housing precarity and they went ahead with it anyway and then when you look at unsheltered homelessness that's people who are rough sleeping that's of course related to the things that i just mentioned it's related to um cuts to benefits it's related to the cost of housing but it's also a kind of catch-all 
for lots of other areas of public service, which have either been cut to the bone or just not meeting the scale of need for a very long time. So very often that's things like mental health issues, that's to do with substance abuse issues, it's to do with the sort of support that is or isn't given to people um, when they're released from prison. And now increasingly, um, because asylum seekers are so poorly treated because there's so few services for them because they've been treated as little more than a political punching bag by both major Westminster parties. You've got an increased number of people who are seeking asylum, um, who are very, very vulnerable, who've been forced to live in tents on the street. Now, each and every one of these issues is solvable by a government that wants to solve it. But they simply don't want to. It's not in their economic model. It's not in their ideological model either. And so what they hope to do is turn people into extensions of, you know, a kind of police force. You you generate a climate of blaming unsheltered people for their own conditions. And how those security guards treated that homeless man was absolutely disgusting, completely indefensible. That behavior, though, is a product of how homeless people are treated by the government. Because if you've got a government saying these people don't matter, and it's also kind of their fault anyway, of course other people are going to follow suit. Um, so for me, the buck stops with government responsibility. Um, and I don't want to just sort of, you know, pick on some minimum wage security guards, whereas, you know, yeah, the the buck goes way higher than that. I absolutely agree with that. I mean, Suella Braverman, before she got fired, um, famously sort of went to the newspapers and said that homelessness was a lifestyle choice. I mean, my response to that is, if it's a lifestyle choice, why do people choose it more whenever the Tories are in government, right? Either they're sort of sending out this, this message that, oh, culturally, it's a really good lifestyle to be street homeless, or maybe it's when you cut back on essential services, more people end up having to sleep on the street. One of those seems more plausible than the other. Let's go to our next story. The Israeli government puts a lot of money and effort into whitewashing its war on Gaza. The war is one of defense. It's against a group as evil as ISIS or the Nazis. And if the world lets us carpet bomb Gaza, that will be in everyone's best interests. It's, of course, complete nonsense, but it's a message they're desperate to push. And that means they now really want their own soldiers to put down their smartphones. Several videos filmed by members of the IDF have gone viral on social media. In this video, soldiers set fire to food and water supplies in Gaza City. Remember, this is in a context where, according to the UN World Food Agency, food is so short that 9 in 10 people can't eat every day. They seem pretty proud of what they're doing, too, with this soldier smiling from ear to ear. Another video shows an IDF soldier proudly destroying a stationery store in Gaza. You can see sort of throwing a, a snow globe across and smashing stuff. Now, this is not the sign of a counter-terror operation, but a war targeted against a people and their livelihoods. Another video featuring an IDF soldier showing off what they have found in a Gazan flat. So you can see they're not parading weapons or evidence of Hamas membership, but rather lingerie. They refer to the person who's been forced to flee their home as a whore and a slut, right? So this is not people sort of seeking out evidence of terrorism, but rather shaming people um, who they have just displaced. 
There's also a particularly grotesque video. There's an IDF soldier mocking the fact there is no running water and then having moved a prayer rug into a bathroom, um, he stands on it while defecating in a bag, which he then films himself throwing into rubble outside. The caption reads, POV freeing Gaza. A group of IDF soldiers were also filmed dancing and singing the words, Gaza, we have come to conquer. We know our slogan. There are no people who are uninvolved. And we've shown you that video before on this show. And elsewhere, an IDF soldier was pictured standing next to graffiti that said, instead of erasing graffiti, let's erase Gaza. According to The Telegraph, these videos and photos uploaded by soldiers have caused a headache for the IDF. A spokesperson told them, quote, in any event that does not align with IDF values, command and disciplinary steps will be taken. Now, the idea of actions that align with IDF values and those which don't align is a loose one. The building those soldiers were cheering Um, as they blew it up, as they demolished it, was a UN school. So a UN school being blown up, TNT, and then you've got a bunch of soldiers cheering. Ash, um, I mean, mean, this is a war where lots of stuff is going to get uploaded. All the soldiers have phones. I mean, it seems like most of the guards and civilians also have phones. We are seeing lots and lots of images of this war. And that does mean it's, you know, difficult for the IDF to try and show the world that it's something that it's not. We are seeing the true nature of this war via videos uploaded to to Twitter, to Facebook, to TikTok. Well, I think that's true. And I think that there's been a real desire on the IDF's part to try and control the narrative. But one of the things that you also have to remember is that these images of psychological terrorism, of dehumanization, of violence and humiliation, also serve an ideological purpose, which is to shame, harass, intimidate Palestinian people into, you know, worst case scenario submission, best case scenario from, you know, the Israeli state's point of view, um, giving up on the hope of a viable and safe state and leaving and giving up on on, on the hope of, of living in the land between the river and the sea. So I think that Yes, it obviously has an impact on on how many people in the international community feel. But I don't think that the IDF are so embarrassed that the thing that they really want to do is is control how their soldiers are posting on social media because it also performs a, a function, a quite perverse function of morale boosting. That's why you've seen all these videos of, you know, really quite shit, dance pop EDM singers singing songs which call for, you know, the erasing of Gaza, which routinely dehumanize Palestinians. That's the kind of ideological scaffolding and geeing up that you need in order to carry out this kind of indiscriminate warfare and ethnic cleansing. You need to utterly dehumanize your um, your enemy, in this case, the Palestinians of Gaza, and you need to sort of rev yourself up into a state where anything that's done to them is justifiable. And so I think this is something which is really important, which is people don't do evil things because they've got this sort of evil deep inside them, right? People do evil things because they exist within within structures which incentivize that very evil, which incentivize 
abuses, which incentivize violence, which incentivize um, humiliation. And I think the last thing that I want to say is something which I found quite frustrating, which is often on social media, you get these pro-Israel uh, advocates sharing images which they say are from Palestine of, you know, Palestinian children being radicalized or a Palestinian child wearing a Hamas headband, as if to sort of say, well, look at this society. It's so irredeemably evil. It's so invested in terrorism. How do you expect us to make peace with these people? Look at, at how they indoctrinate their own children. Look at how the hatred is, is taught to them from such an early age. Whereas when you see these kinds of images of IDF soldiers making TikToks of desecrating Palestinian homes or TikToks of Israeli civilians dressing up their children to mock the Palestinians of Gaza, to put dirt on their faces and give themselves a monobrow. That's not used to say, well, look at this society, isn't it irrede irredeemably evil? You know? It 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 doesn't it doesn't feature in the discussions in the same way at all. Now I'm not saying that the good and correct thing is to sort of play the same games as pro-Israel advocates do, but sort of say, well, look, this this does indicate the level of racism, the level of dehumanization that permeates Israeli society and is rife in the Israeli army in order for the army to do the very thing that it's doing, which is carrying out a program of ethnic cleansing. The IDF and Israel potentially aren't particularly embarrassed by these videos. They might see this as morale boosting for their troops and also demoralizing for the people of Gaza who ideally they would like to leave, right? So, so it's not necessarily the case that Israel really cares about this. I think it's very embar embarrassing for their Western backers because their Western backers like to pretend that Israel is something which they, which they are not, right? Joe Biden, the UK, Sunak, they all say, oh no, it's, it's Hamas which commits these sort of terrible, brutal war crimes. The Israelis, they hate war. They don't want to be fighting this war, but they have this burden of trying to take out this terrible terrorist group, which they have nothing to do with. You know, it's, the, it's, it's not Israel's fault that they occupied um, the West Bank and put Gaza under siege. And then there was a terrorist attack. And, and now they're having to do an anti-terror operation where they just by accident killed 20,000 people. Right. This is the, the line, the ridiculous line that Western governments like to take. And you know, we show you quotes all the time. This is not what the Israelis are saying to, this is not what Israeli politicians are saying to the Israeli public, right? That This isn't sort of a big expose um, in Israel. But the more Western publics are shown this, or international publics in general are shown this, the more sort of this lie that, oh, we're just supporting this normal liberal government sort of falls apart. I think it might be the case that Netanyahu doesn't really mind if these videos sort of go viral. But I think Joe Biden and I think Rishi Sunak might be quite annoyed about it. On that topic, um, we have a similar story, which is videos showing Israel for what they are, however much the West would like to pretend they are something else. Israel's Western backers like to pretend that Israel is a liberal state that wants peace in the Middle East. Unfortunately for them, Israel's ambassador to the UK has been more honest. Here's Sipi Hotavelli speaking to Sky News. Is there still a chance for a two-state solution? I think it's about time for the world to realize that Oslo paradigm failed on the 7th but, of October, and we need to build a new one. And in but, order to build a new one... does that new one include the Palestinians living in a state of their own? Does, I think, is that what it includes? I think the biggest question is, what type of Palestinians are on the other side? This is what Israel no, realized on the 7th of October. Though? 
The answer is absolutely no, and I'll tell you why. Well, then because how can there the be moment, peace? In, no, how can I'll there be answer, peace in The reason there is no peace Israel. is because the Palestinians... How can, without offering Mark, a state to Palestine, how Mark, can there be peace in Israel? Israel knows today, and the world should know now, the reason the Oslo Accords failed is because the Palestinians never wanted to have a state next to Israel. They want to have a state from the river to the sea. So the two-state so solution is dead. Why are you obsessed with a formula that never worked, that created this radical people in the other side? Why are you obsessed with that? Now, what wasn't surprising in that video is that Sipi Hotavelli doesn't want a two-state solution. Now, she is an ambassador for a government which doesn't want a two-state solution. Netanyahu is very open about this. Likud has never wanted a two-state solution. What they want is a greater Israel from the river to the sea, and then the Palestinians will either have to live under some apartheid system, or they will successfully manage to clear them out, which is ultimately their sort of ideal scenario. What was surprising there, though, was that it was said in English to an international audience. Now, I think Sipi Hotavelli, I mean, seems to be a terrible ambassador. Mark Regev was the former Israeli ambassador to the UK. And he was very good at avoiding the question. You know, if he'd been asked that, he would have said something along the lines of, look, now is not the time to talk about end states. Now is the time where we have to defeat um, this terrorist organization. And I'm not going to talk about political solutions. We're in the middle of a war, right? In fact, I've heard him say that over the past few weeks whenever he's asked this question. Sipi Hotavelli just says, absolutely not. There shall be no two-state solution. And as I say, that's not a surprise because that's what these Israeli politicians have been saying for decades now. That's what Netanyahu has been saying for decades. But they don't say it to international audiences because we have a government that likes to pretend that the Israeli government is something that it's not. You know, Joe Biden, Rishi Sunak, they all say, we're going to fund Israel to fight this war and we're backing a two-state solution. Now, it's very awkward for them if the Israeli government come out and say in English to Western audiences, we don't want a two-state solution. What the hell are you talking about? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Right? Which for me means she's, you know, I'm, I'm thankful to Sipi Otavelli for sort of saying what we all knew, what we've all known for a long time, but which isn't often said in English. So, so thank you, Sipi Otavelli, for that. To be honest, was that a good interview or was just he, he very lucky? That's gone viral on Twitter and lots of people who should have known better saying, what? I can't, you know, all these liberals who are sort of like very critical of pro-Palestine activists saying, what? They don't want a two-state solution. This is crazy. You know, so we've obviously known this for a very long time. Some people are surprised. Um, that Sky host will be pleased that sort of he got that scoop the thing we all knew, knew but said in English, he, he he really should have pushed back and said, well, well, then are you going to give them all the vote? You know, if there isn't going to be a Palestinian state, are you going to occupy it indefinitely, forever? Are they going to get the vote? Is this going to be apartheid? Because if you're not going to give the Palestinians a state and you're not going to give them the vote, then you are going to have apartheid or ethnic cleansing, one of the two, right? Those are the two options there. Um, Ash, I want your thoughts on this. Um, so as I say... This has been Israeli government policy for a very, very long time, but it isn't often expressed so clearly to an international audience. How significant do you think that is? So I think you've pointed out something that's really important, which is the sort of language bifurcation of Israel's PR strategy. Because what is said in Hebrew to the Israeli press, to Israeli uh, politicians, is really different often from what you hear in English. So in English, it's all about bolstering that support, that sort of immunity, that military aid, that total sense of impunity from America. And you sort of say whatever you have to say in order to achieve it. And in Hebrew, to Israeli media and Israeli politicians, which is becoming increasingly 
radicalized, hardline and right wing, you sort of say, what's really going on? Which is, of course, I won't be a Palestinian state. Me, Benjamin Netanyahu, vote me and I'll make sure there's never a Palestinian state. America, I know what America is. It is a thing that moves. So you you, you have this sort of... Um, you know, two two facedness, right? You've got one pitch for, uh, you know, the the Anglosphere and, and another in Israel, and I guess I'm trying to work out whether Zippy Hotavelli is having a mask off moment, but she's not as, I don't know, she lacks the finesse perhaps of someone like Mark Regev, or if because right now the position of the Israeli state is that they've altered the facts on the ground so radically in Gaza, um, and not just in Gaza, that the um, entrenching of occupation in the West Bank, the further radicalization of uh, settlers, you know, Itmar Ben-Gavir handing out guns to settlers, that there is no longer a need to keep up the pretense of you know, wanting to uh, one day uphold or implement the Oslo Accords. I wonder if there is a sense of, okay, well, you know, we've killed 20,000 civilians. We've not stopped bombing. We can do what we want. We, we, we don't have to pay this kind of lip service anymore. So I wonder if it's a, a different personality or if everything that's happened since October the 7th means that you know, the, the the gloves are off. There's no need to keep up the lie anymore. I think it was an accident. And and the reason I say this is because, you know, the sort of two-facedness or sort of the the idea where you say we really want a two-state solution, then you do something a bit different. You could say that sort of about Israeli labor, you know, so sort of the liberals in Israel who sort of say we really want a two-state solution and they offer deals which aren't that good. So what was offered in 2000 and the Palestinians are always sort of blamed for saying no to that deal was... Um, you know, a, 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 an independent Palestinian state in the West Bank, but, you know, it wouldn't have its own, it wouldn't have control of its armed forces, and it would have this really dodgy border whereby lots of the settlements would would stay. So they were, they were offering something which, you know, wasn't a great deal, but they did, you know, they said, we are very much committed to a two-state solution. Netanyahu doesn't normally say, we are very committed to a two-state solution to an international audience. He just normally neither confirms nor denies. And Regev does exactly the same thing. Neither confirms nor denies. Whenever a two-state solution is brought up, he changes the subject. And this is sort of long-standing Israeli policy in many areas. So when it comes to their nuclear weapons, Israel's policy is to neither confirm nor deny. That's been their official policy for decades, in fact. Um, and, and that makes me think that the, the next question Mark Stone from Sky should have asked, okay, do you have nuclear weapons? He could have got like the, the scoop of the century by just getting this... this, this <laughs> This idiot, I think, who just can't contain herself, sort of say, "Yes, of course we've got nuclear weapons. Of course we don't want a two-state solution." I think um, he, he could have kept that interview going on a little bit longer. Ash, your final thoughts on that interview? I mean, are you as grateful for me for for Sippy Hotavelli? Why would you make this person an ambassador? Like she's the, she seems to have the opposite skills, right? She, which is just, she, she's not doesn't seem to be taking government lines. She's showing Israel to be really extreme. You know, you're supposed to show Israel to be this very normal liberal country and she just can't contain herself. Maybe it shows that Israel is more confident than ever that the UK will go on with whatever atrocities they choose to carry out against the Palestinians. Once upon a time, we maybe needed a bit more of a talented ambassador like Mark Greger, whereas now you can just, you know, send us any old idiot ranting, raving, you know, and we'll be like, yeah, fine. You don't actually have the sure 
offer anything up diplomatically. Do what you as many schools as you want. We're not going to mind. Maybe it's a reflection of that. I think one last thing that I add before I, you know, sort of go swimming in a in a bath of lemsip um, is that if you do want to know a bit more about how the Israeli position has evolved, what went into the Oslo Accords, why they were so flawed, and how Israeli politics have transformed since that time, please do listen to me with Daniel Levy, a former Israeli peace negotiator, who I think seems to have gone on quite an interesting journey himself. I would love to carry out a a second interview with him if I ever get the chance, and if I ever shake this cold. I think that point about Israel not sending their best is actually relevant, not just because, you know, they think maybe what the, what the West thinks about them doesn't matter as much. But Mark Regev, actually, who is a very talented communicator, he was sent to the UK 2016 to 2020 when there was a leader of the opposition who was actually very critical of Israel. And it could have been the case that a permanent member of the UN Security Council would have been someone who would have stood up unashamedly for the Palestinian people. Right. So they sent Mark Regev over. He had quite a difficult job. You know, how to try and contain this threat to Israel's security. When Jeremy Corbyn was out and Keir Starmer was in, they're like, oh, now let's send over the B team. You know, Mark Regev got deployed somewhere else. I think he became a, you know, he moved back to Israel, actually, and became an advisor to, to Netanyahu. And then they sent over this complete idiot who's, you know, a complete incompetent because they know that whatever she says, Keir Starmer and Rishi Sunak, the two major parties are still going to give pretty much unconditional support to Israel, which is what you want. You know, if, if you want to secure your foreign backers, you need to make sure that the two main parties both support you. Um, they have that now, so they don't need to send their best. Thank you, Baj, for joining me tonight and for all of you for tuning in. Um, the link to that downstream Ash just mentioned is going to be in the description. I do recommend it. Come back tomorrow for another show from 6pm. For now, you've been watching Navarro Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Novara Media. Go to novaramedia.com slash support.